The 2023 ag policy season kicked off with a Farm Bureau meeting in Puerto Rico. As farmers and policymakers look back on missed opportunities and ahead to a fight for the Farm Bill, what forces are shaping policy in 2023? That's today on Field Posts. is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The annual Farm Bureau meeting was in Puerto Rico this year and served as a kickoff for 2023 discussions about key ag-related policy issues. Everything from immigration reform to disaster aid to waters of the U.S. is on the table. And in the background looms the expiration of the 2018 Farm Bill and the need to get another major piece of ag legislation across the finish line sooner rather than later. Here to help share what he learned at the Farm Bureau meeting and what he's been tracking on the policy front since is DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton. He'll dig into the meeting's spotlight on Puerto Rican agriculture, key topics that delegates were focused on, and what lawmakers expect to see as the Farm Bill process continues. We'll check in on dairy and coffee in a tropical climate, where the Farm Bill budget might be at risk, and responses to the big right-to-repair announcement between Farm Bureau and John Deere, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by DTN's all-new Ag Summit series. The annual Ag Summit is a mainstay for progressive farmers who are looking to build knowledge and refine their decision-making skills during the winter months. But now, the team at DTN is bringing all the news, insights, and learnings to you throughout the year. Here's DTN business editor Katie Dellinger for more on the first Ag Summit Series event coming soon. What we've decided to do for 2023 is to do more frequent updates in a similar format and style as Ag Summit. So we're going to be doing the Ag Summit Series. The first event starts February 28th. We are going to be weighing in on this pre-planting situation. You know that it's going to be a tight race for acres this year. It's going to be an interesting one. And so what we're going to do is we're going to bring together DTN analyst Todd Holtman to really talk and lead the discussion on that. We're also going to have DTN ag meteorologist John Baranek give an updated and detailed look at the spring planting forecast so that farmers can really get an idea of what's going to be going on as they hit the ground in March when that discussion around acreage is really heating up and then in late March and early April when people are out there putting that seed in the ground, we're really looking to try and give some insight and some opportunities for discussion ahead of that at the DTN Ag Summit Series. These DTN Ag Summit Series events will be half days, so it'll be mornings, probably about 8.30 to 11 or noon. So it's not as much of a commitment as the DTN Ag Summit, but it'll be definitely worth your while to get up on the news and issues of the day with the people who are influencing it most. To learn more, visit spotlights.dtnpf.com backslash ag summit. Now back to the show. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton joins us today to bring us the latest on farm policy discussions happening in D.C. and around the country. Chris, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about expectations as the year gets started. What are you watching most closely? And thinking about the Farm Bureau meeting, what were you expecting to be top priority issues for farmers to be talking about as we go into the new year? I think probably the biggest thing off the bat was 
primarily will we rewrite the farm bill in 2023 and that was a focus um at the Farm Bureau meeting. Uh, of course, they had a focus and discussion and a lot of push on um, the new waters of the U.S. rule that came out of EPA and pushback on that. But the secretary, of course, was down there and spoke. But the biggest focus really is what are we going to do with the farm bill in 2023? What's going to need to change? Uh, and maybe a little bit of... Um, Looking back at maybe some lost opportunity, Farm Bureau still wants to see some immigration reform, but Farm Bureau and agriculture really lost an opportunity last year to get a bill passed out of the Senate. And it's very unlikely that we're going to see a big labor reform and immigration bill come out of the current Congress that would expand ag labor is possible, but at the moment, I don't think that you're going to see, there certainly hasn't been any bills dropped that indicate that kind of push. We'll circle back a little bit to the immigration question, but I would love to just hear maybe some of the top line, big hallmark ideas or actions that came out of the Farm Bureau meeting in Puerto Rico. What was it like to have a Farm Bureau meeting in Puerto Rico? It was a lot of fun to have a Farm Bureau meeting in Puerto Rico. My hotel especially was, I was right in the middle of old San Juan. That's where Farm Bureau put me. And that is very touristy area. Literally, I walk out of the front of my hotel and I'm walking, I'm looking at the the docks where the large cruise ships dock. So the place was always flooded with, with tourists. So that was really fascinating just from seeing that aspect in Farm Bureau. As far as the meeting itself, tried to spend only a couple of days at the convention center because I wanted to get out and see agriculture on the island. And I got to Farm Bureau, I got to the Puerto Rico a couple of days early before the conference began. And I went out and spent two days really just meeting with primarily with dairy farmers on the island. And everybody talks and looks at some of the exotic things that maybe are grown in Puerto Rico, but really dairy by far is probably the biggest ag industry on the island. And so that was fun to to visit with these dairy farmers on things that they want to see changed and uh, things that they're working on. And so that was primarily a focus for me was to, uh, to work on a feature on, on dairy production. I would be remiss, I should have mentioned probably one of the biggest things to come out of Farm Bureau's meeting was they made a big announcement with John Deere. and They signed this MOU on, on right to repair issues. And so that was, it's the, it's actually drawn a lot of criticism from other people outside of Farm Bureau on that deal on just how much it really means to people. But, but that was a a big focus, certainly at the meeting was this MOU between John Deere and the American Farm Bureau. I may circle back to that a little bit as well, but I'm going to follow up on the dairy story because I'm curious just to hear a little bit more about, yeah, about that story you put together. I think when people think about Puerto Rico, they're probably thinking of the devastation of the hurricane in recent years. And I can imagine a dairy farm with the infrastructure that is involved in that with the year round kind of business model there. 
I imagine they were significantly affected. Have things mostly bounced back? Is the industry there very different? Talk to us a little bit about what you saw. It was very interesting. The biggest issue that they were facing more than anything was really high prices of, of imported feed. They rely pretty heavily, obviously, on imported grain from the United States and the hay from the United States. And the dairy production, Puerto Rico, is concentrated around this town of the city of Hatillo. And they have a big, literally a big thing that with the dairy cow that says dairy capital of Puerto Rico. And there are a ton of little small dairy farms in the grand scheme of things around uh, around that town. And they're working pretty heavily on trying to get their farmers to convert more to great, greater grazing practices, more grass-fed dairy milk, things of that nature. It's interesting because while Puerto Rico relies very heavily on imported food from the United States, they have a management system for their dairies that basically ensures virtually all of their fluid milk comes from the cow, comes from the island. And so that supports their farmers. Their milk was probably about $2 more per gallon than, than what we would pay in the U.S. So we're paying $4 a gallon for, $4 for a gallon of milk. They're paying about 6 from what I saw from the grocery stores in the area. But their dairy farmers are also, they get more money per hundredweight than than. U.S. dairy farmers as well. So yeah, as far as recovering from the hurricanes, they're kind of used to it. They have generators, different things such as that. They definitely lose cows and they lose milk when these hurricanes hit. It just depends on what side of the island that the hurricane lands on, how much the devastation is going to be. But, but they've been doing a lot more agritourism with their dairies, things of that nature. It was very uh, vibrant small little industry on the island and they the one thing that they've been able to do is protect the island from a flood of dairy imports from the united states at least uh, fluid milk but it does get to be expensive for, for their for their consumers to buy that milk i'm curious too you mentioned when maybe when people think of puerto rico they think of a bit more of an exotic kind of farming i assume coffee is a part of that. Talk a little bit about what you learned at the conference or at events around coffee and what's the story there? The story was I came back from Puerto Rico with eight pounds of coffee, all different varieties. Uh, everywhere I went, I was picking up coffee. Unfortunately, I found out my favorite coffee so far was, was called Alto Grande. And that was the one I should have probably bought more of, but yeah, the coffee industry, um, it's a lot of agritourism and there are, it's a special, unique brands that they have for their coffee on the island. They they certainly have a lot of farms on, of coffee production as well. That's an area where they have really lost a lot of production because of the hurricanes. The, when Maria hit in 2017, they lost as much as 90% of their coffee trees on the island. So they have had to rebuild the coffee farms and actually brought in trees, brought in seeds and trees from Costa Rica to help with production. So they got their coffee production really got slammed. And it, 
really has taken until now to rebuild it, so to speak. The USDA made a big focus when they were there to to talk about both disaster aid that they were trying to provide for for farmers based upon the uh, the hurricane that hit in 21. And then they are also trying to promote and emphasize climate smart agriculture with uh, the coffee farmers on the island as well. That maybe offers a good transition back to talking a little bit more about kind of policy priorities. Disaster aid, I think, is a key kind of concern for folks who are thinking about the farm bill. And obviously, disaster aid is not usually included in the farm bill because it's ad hoc. But I'm curious what you heard as far as priorities as Farm Bureau starts to think about farm bill priorities, and then also what you're hearing maybe beyond the meeting about one, we've talked a lot about whether or not 2023 is actually going to be a farm bill year or not. And then two, if we do somehow get a farm bill across the finish line this year, what kind of differences or changes might you expect? Yeah, the biggest problem with Estrade uh, being ad hoc the way it is that it does not add to the farm bill um, budget baseline. They don't, the Congressional Budget Office, the uh, Congressional Committees do not get to treat disaster aid for agriculture as part of the money that's already part of the farm bill. So as they've funded those, we've spent really since the last farm bill has passed, we've spent about $70 billion in different kinds of uh, ad hoc aid for farmers. Some of that was trade aid, the market facilitation program created by USDA. Some of it was disaster money passed by Congress for the for the WIP program, the WIP Plus program, now the ERP program, the coronavirus programs. They called that CFAP. There's some five or six acronyms here that have been created just from the ad hoc programs that have been passed or created by USDA since 2018 Farm Bill. So that $70 billion definitely went over the last four or five years to help farmers with their bottom lines, but it doesn't help create a a more permanent program for the next farm bill. National Budget Office was just now coming out with fine budget scores for uh, for the next farm bill. And uh, it's it's really not gonna show a lot of extra money for for commodity programs. It did show, interestingly enough, more money for crop insurance over the next decade, about $23 billion. But as far as the programs we're familiar with for commodity producers, ARC and PLC, that sort of thing, there's just, they're going to have to find money somewhere. If they can go out and convince another committee to give them more money or something like that, get more money from Senate finance or the budget committee, that may help. And this is a problem because the CBO now is coming out with how much more our deficits are going to increase over the next decade, how much bigger the debt is going to be nationally over the next decade. Congress has been talking about, particularly the House, the Republicans in the House, about cutting spending. There was a farm bill listening session yesterday in the Tulare California as part of the World Ag Expo. You had the Speaker of the House there for a little while. I don't know exactly how long he stayed. You had the Chairman of the Ag Committee. You had a bipartisan group of congressmen, mostly from California. And nobody who testified or spoke at that hearing over that two-hour stretch, and they each got two or three minutes, nobody said, we 
for the sake of the country, you should cut spending on our programs. Nobody said that. Everybody said, we need more here. We need more for this. We need more research dollars. We need more for uh, SNAP to improve the fruit and vegetables. We need more money for uh, California specialty crop producers because the California water restrictions are putting different pressures on them and they need to find ways to adapt and overcome. All of those needs were laid out in just that one meeting, just representing and reflecting some issues in California and everybody's asking for more money, which is always the case. And the last time somebody asked or said, we don't need any more money, go ahead and cut us out. Were the, were the cotton guys back in the 2008 farm bill. And then within two years, they realized what a terrible mistake they had made. And they were trying to find a way to get back into the commodity program. That was a lesson learned kind of thing for, uh, for those guys. Speaking of more money, we've also continued to watch the Climate Smart story. You said there was some mention of it at the Farm Bureau meeting or some discussion around it. Huge program that's put out a lot of money or that is in the process of putting out a lot of money to support USDA's Climate Smart Act programs. Talk a little bit about kind of the updates there, what you heard from folks at the meeting and where you expect those kind of conversations to develop as the year goes on. Yeah, it was highlighted in the from the Agriculture Secretary and others at, U, at uh, USDA during the um, some meetings and some events in Puerto Rico, and used to be highlighted. I expect that Climate Smart Ag discussions will play a role in the USDA Outlook Forum later this month out in DC. So you've got two tracks. You've got the the one-time grant money that was provided about three billion i think there are like 140 different projects involved with that should mention that dtn is part of one of those projects with corn and soybean producers looking at reducing emissions and increasing cover crops you know we're ourselves even playing a role in some of these projects but you have all of those different 140 projects going on and now you have $0.5 billion that was provided to USDA's conservation programs and the Inflation Reduction Act. And USDA just this week released about $850 million to prop up their EQIP and CSP and the easement programs for, for 20 23 fiscal year and basically add and allow more farmers to sign up for those programs if their project and the focus of their work can be shown that it will reduce emissions or sequester carbon or some sort of climate-related connection like that. And there is a ton of money out there right now for these various climate smart projects and and it will continue usda i think has four or five years to spend that money that was from the ira to to boost their conservation programs now the big issue then is well will congress take some money away from the current conservation programs spending because they got this special money in the IRA and that remains to be seen. I think that will be more difficult to do because Debbie Stabenow, the chairwoman of the Senate Agriculture Committee, fought fiercely to get that money in the IRA and this will be her last farm bill. She's retiring at the end of 2024. She definitely wants to get a farm bill done, but she is going to maintain keeping that spending for conservation programs 
and and this climate smart money in there. So it's going to be a huge focus of topic in the farm bill. It's going to we're going to hopefully be seeing more from USDA on how they're going to what would be the term how they'll verify how they will confirm that these practices are doing what they thought they would do. Uh, they also now have the Growing Climate Solutions Act that passed at the end of the year in the omnibus bill, and they'll be implementing that as well to put some oversight on these carbon credit programs. And that's going to be another important part of all of this going forward as well is how do they create that carbon program like they do with the organic program. You've got the, here are the standards, here are the third party verifiers, here's what you do to to get that. And by the way, here's a little seal that we created. So we'll see how that works out going forward. I'm curious, as you see some of that stuff, some of these conversations start to take a little bit more shape and kind of progress forward. Where are you in terms of confidence or lack of confidence in the potential of getting a farm bill across the finish line before this one expires? No, I don't think you'll definitely not see a farm bill before the end of September. That's when this one is set to expire. Jerry Hagstrom was at the Crop Insurance Group's annual meeting down in Bonita Springs, Florida, which I don't exactly know where Bonita Springs is. It sounds like a really neat area, but I'm sure they were working very hard down there. But anyway, Frank Lucas, Representative Frank Lucas from Oklahoma, he's back on the Ag Committee, former chairman. He spoke down at that meeting last week, and or I should say, I guess earlier this week. And he, he said, we're going to try really hard to get a farm bill this year, but he definitely he said he would not hold his breath on the idea that we will get a farm bill before September 30th, before this one expires. So there will, there will be some sort of extension that will play out with the farm bill. Farm bill expires at the end of the fiscal year. Hopefully at the end of September 2023, we are not in the middle of some sort of budget government shutdown battle royal. But, you know, what we'll end up with is some sort of extension of the farm bill in some way, shape or form. It'll be interesting to see if and when how the House Agriculture Committee gets its gets its bill to the floor and what the vote numbers would end up being on that bill. Speaker McCarthy, again, was at that meeting in Tulare, California, just yesterday, Valentine's Day, and he was speaking that, he, hey, we're going to get a farm bill done. We're, we know it's complicated. We know it's hard. We know there's a lot that goes into it, but we're going to get a farm bill done. That was very encouraging, though. I think that, that he was there, that he made that those kind of statements. It's on his radar screen. It may become a priority bill for him to to move forward. We'll have to see. If that's the case, then things will move more smoothly than, than maybe I've been giving him credit for. We'll see. I want to just circle back to the immigration bill and the update to that falls into that category. Immigration and kind of immigration reform, labor reform for agriculture has been a top priority for the Farm Bureau for several years now. You mentioned some looking back on the lost opportunity from 2022 on that front. I'm curious whether you got the sense about around potential for new action forward movement in on something new around that, or does it feel like the kind of immigration reform question is tabled for now? I think it's tabled at the moment. I don't see anybody um, in the House or Senate at the moment who 
would be carrying the water, so to speak, on a bill. Obviously, with Republicans in control of the House, you've got to have a committee members and, and committee leadership that would be interested in advancing a bill. There are certainly some House Republicans who have been, they were basically begging the Senate to take up the bill before the end of the year because they knew that it wasn't, nothing would probably move right now. But Representative Newhouse from Washington State has been really one of the big leaders on trying to uh, to make this happen. I haven't heard for anything from him since the beginning of the year on, on, on advancing something new. So... Working in a stalled mode and everybody wants to focus again on, on locking down the border, that sort of thing. And and it's going to create complications with, with ag labor. That was even an issue in Puerto Rico. Dairy farmers, coffee farmers, others, they're actually bringing in H-2A workers from Costa Rica and Guatemala and other Central American com- countries to help with the labor in Puerto Rico for farms because they're struggling with labor as well. Everybody in agriculture is is pressured on the labor front and there are hundreds of thousands of people right across the border dying to come in. You would think we could figure out a way to go, hey, we're willing to open up the border a little more and let people in. Do you what do you think about picking apples? Something of that, but we have not gotten to that point. And uh, even though Farm Bureau, you know, has, has talked about this topic a lot, and Zippy Duval brought it up again when he gave a speech at the at the Farm Bureau meeting. But I just don't think anybody right now has political will to to step forward and try to advance a bill. You mentioned the right to repair announcement for between with Farm Bureau and John Deere. You mentioned that not, maybe not everyone saw that as a the the big positive that it was billed as. Could you talk a little bit about the reactions to it and maybe what you heard from folks at the meeting about what that kind of agreement might mean going forward? The Farm Bureau leaders at the meeting who worked on this, and they worked on it from several states, they were pretty positive about it, felt that it was going to be a step forward with with one of the manufacturers, and as whether it's going to be a step forward with the, uh, the dealerships that that sell those products or not. So it's it's been interesting since that you assigned. Not pe- many people are talking about it nearly as much. This past week, there was an Associated Press article that their right to repair legislation in at least 11 states right now. And Todd Neely from our staff had a piece also this week about the Biden administration supporting some farmers that are suing deer. There was a motion, a court motion, and the Justice Department weighed in on that and weighed in in favor of the farmers. This issue is going to continue to play out, I think, both um, in the legal circles and in the state legislatures going forward. And they're really not an MOU between a farm group and a manufacturer just doesn't carry the weight of law. You can see that's just going to continue to be a complication going forward for those between the farmers and and the manufacturers. One last question. I the Winter season is wrapping up. Things are looking towards planting, but I think there are still a few weeks left to travel around and get some winter stories while folks are not caught up with field work. Talk a little bit about stories that you are working on or are going to begin working on in the next few weeks and what readers should be looking at. My uh, my biggest opus at the moment 
is on the lesser prairie chicken. The, the Fish and Wildlife Service is moving forward with a rule that would make the lesser designate the lesser prairie chicken as endangered in parts of Texas and New Mexico, and it would make the lesser prairie chicken considered in a big swath of Kansas, Oklahoma, the upper tip of the Texas Panhandle and eastern Colorado. So this is a big move by the Fish and Wildlife Service regarding this gameland bird that relies heavily on prairie lands and pasture to to survive. And I decided to take a longer look and try to reach out and understand a little more for people because all I was dealing with was press releases and the state senators and men denouncing the Fish and Wildlife Service over this and the complications involved. So I've been down to a couple meetings in Kansas about it and trying to understand a little more about what the lesser prairie chicken listing means. It does mean for some landowners who wanted to put in some conservation measures on their uh, livestock areas that they're going to be, there's going to be money available for them to through the Department of Interior to, uh, to make that happen. But the uh, Fish and Wildlife wants cattle livestock producers who, you know, and landowners to have to submit and get these approved grazing plans through these third-party entities and that is being seen as a headache by some different groups and some livestock producers of something that they feel like maybe they shouldn't have to, to do. There's litigation being threatened by states of Texas, Kent, and Oklahoma. And I don't know if, I don't think New Mexico has filed lawsuit yet, but I know some counties in New Mexico might be joining litigation. And a lot of this also plays into not just grazing lands, but land that is now being, maybe the land right now might be pasture, but it's also being designated for a future fracking site. And it would really complicate the ability for oil and gas expansion in some of those areas going forward. So there's this strange complicated dynamic over this bird and the the states involved the cattle producers or the landowners that could be affected by this as well so that's the long and short of this complicated story on on the lesser prairie chicken but now next week i will go to dc the usda outlook forum will be next week we'll get the presentations from USDA's chief economist on how many acres of corn they expect, how many acres of soybeans, what the prices are going to be, what's the outlook for trade, etc. It's, it's ag's version of fantasy baseball before the season begins. What are the forecasts and what do what does everything look like? Last during that meeting, it the meeting literally began the the morning after Russia invaded Ukraine. And you could just take everything that USDA was talking about, chuck it aside because everything went out the window more or less when that happened. So we'll be interested to see what comes out of the USDA outlook forum next week. You can read Chris's coverage of the Farm Bureau meeting, as well as his extensive reporting on ag policy at DTNPF.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Chris Clayton. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here.
This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.